And you can open your Bible to Romans chapter 12, or you can go to your phone and go to your browser and type in Romans 12 ESV Bible. But you might be thinking, wait a minute, where is my phone? It's right here. <laughs> Someone dropped their phone on their way into church right outside the office door. It's here. I'll just put it, I'll put it down here and you can sneak up. <laughs> Maybe not during the sermon, but, uh, but at some point it's right there. Well, please stand as we listen to the word of God read. Today's reading is Romans 12 verses 1 through 2, and Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and it's unlike any that we've had thus far. So this is the first year we get to celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is a massive good thing, a massive answer to prayer by millions of Christians uh, for decades, almost 50 years. This is the 50th anniversary, actually, of the, the original Roe v. Wade decision. It was January 22nd, 1973. So that, that decision pronounced, arbitrarily we would say, it pronounced that there is a right to an abortion in the Constitution. It's not in the words there, but it's just there. Trust us. So essentially that's what they said. There's a right to an abortion there. It protected the right completely in the first trimester, and then in the second and third trimesters, it went on to say that you could only have an abortion if it was for the sake of the health of the mother. And then health of the mother got, got defined in the broadest of ways. And so it, it allowed virtually no limitation, actually, on abortions in our country. But then this summer, the Supreme Court of the United States, in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization decision, which was June 24th, 2022. June 24th, 2022, in that decision, Samuel Alito said, not so fast. The original Roe v. Wade decision was a horrible decision. And so he went on to argue really, really persuasively uh, and powerfully. If, you've ever, if you ever get a chance to read the opinion, it is, it is actually a powerful statement. And so he said it was, it was a terrible decision, and we should, we should return the, 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 the right to craft laws about abortion back to where it belongs, which is to the states. So it didn't, it didn't, it didn't uh, outlaw abortion, which is somehow how it gets discussed, but it did return the ability of the states. Uh, return to the states the ability to write laws against abortion or for abortion as, as it's happening. So this isn't the end of the war. You know, June 24th, 2022 was not the end of the war. It was a major battle, a major victory, uh, uh, victorious battle, but it was not the end of the war. And reminders that the war continues are, they're all around us, but here, here are just three. 
So one is North Carolina law right now, which allows abortions up to 20 weeks. 20 weeks is pretty late. Uh, a lot of development has happened to that child in 20 weeks, and North Carolina law allows for those abortions. Another reminder of the war not being over is an article I read last Thanksgiving. I kind of stumbled on it. You know, I was looking for, I don't know, probably something for a sermon, I guess, and looking for Thanksgiving articles, and I stumbled on this article titled, We're Thankful for Our Abortions. And so a lawyer named Nakaya uh, Natalie uh, wrote an article about why she was thankful for her own abortions and then the abortions of other women who have posted their stories on a, on a website called We Testify. And so their solution to kind of the, what, they, what they would describe as, as the wrong stigma attached to abortion, their solution is just to have everyone basically tell their stories as if this is something to celebrate. And there's no shame attached to it. Now, in some ways, I don't, I don't dispute the need to somehow deal with the shame attached to abortion, but she's dealing with it in entirely the wrong way. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's as if you had someone who was, uh, you know, on a horribly rainy day, <clears throat> walking through the mud, you know, they're covered in mud, uh, head to toe, their face is caked with mud, and they come up to your door, and, and you see them there, and you say, wow, you're really clean. You should come inside my house and sit on my couch. It's a brand new couch. It's a white couch, in fact. But you should come in and sit down on my couch and sleep in my guest bed because you are clean. You're, you're just not helping that person by telling a lie. You help that person if you say, Sister, you really are filthy, but I know how you can get clean. His name is Jesus Christ. That's the solution to the shame and the guilt attached to abortion. A third reminder is the, the growing use of abortion pills in our country. So the estimates are, obviously, they're hard to calculate exactly, but somewhere around half or, or a little more than half of abortions happen now happen by abortion pills, which are obviously much harder to regulate. They're, they're obviously, there are they're many ways they're trying to regulate the use of them, but uh, mifeprestone is, is one of them. And so that is fast becoming the, the more common way to, uh, to do abortions. And so the FDA this, this month actually said that places like Walgreens and CVS could dispense of those um, and without uh, as much um, oversight from doctors. So um, the war continues. The significant battle won this summer. We do celebrate that. We praise God for it. But we don't, we don't just sit down as if the battle's over. It's not like that. So the book of Romans in, this, in these chapters of Romans, actually give us a lot of things to think about as we move forward in the battle, and that's why we're going to look at, at these verses in particular. So we're going to drop down into three spots in Romans 12 through 15, and here are three things that we need to do. Number one, we need to renew minds. We renew minds. Number two, we pursue the good. And then number three, we love our neighbor. We renew minds, we pursue the good, we love our neighbor. And one verse I'm going to read as we, as we look at these passages from Romans is 12.21, which, which says, overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. And so as we pray right now, I'm going to pray that over us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the, the recent developments in the, the battle against abortion in our country. Uh, we do thank you for the Dobbs decision and just the new opportunity given to Christians and people in our country, around, around the country, uh, that within their state legislatures, they can 
they can craft laws to forbid abortions. And so we pray for our own state of North Carolina and we pray for your grace, we pray for your mercy, we pray for changes, we pray for politicians who will be truly pro-life politicians and begin to, to enact laws in our state uh, that move toward a, an outlawing of abortion. And we pray that as we engage this issue, uh, Lord, the temptations to sin and self-righteousness are just everywhere, everywhere we turn with this issue, but we do pray that we would, we would just hear your word directing us very clearly, overcome evil with good, overcome evil with good. We don't overcome evil with evil. We don't overcome evil with our own sinfulness and self-righteousness. We overcome evil with good. And so, Lord, let us be those who live that out in our daily lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Point one, we renew our minds, or we renew minds. So this is the first two verses from Romans 12. Now, we're, we're very much dropping into Romans here. So Romans 1 through 11 is the longest, most powerful explanation of the gospel in the New Testament. 11 chapters of, of gospel truth, gospel good news. It's 1 through 11. And then you get to 12, 1, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has this massive therefore attached to it. Therefore, we live differently than we lived before. The gospel has transformed us. It has changed us. We're free of sin, and we have a new lawgiver that we look to, our Heavenly Father. And so, therefore, we live differently than we lived before. The gospel brings new life, but it also calls us to a new lifestyle. So, faith works. Saving faith works. Here's a couple sentences uh, so that to help you see how these work together. So the gospel saves by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. In other words, there's good works attached to it. There will be good works. The faith, the gospel saves by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. We are saved by faith and not works, but the faith that saves is a faith that works. If your faith doesn't result in good works, then you have to ask very seriously whether it's true faith, whether it's true saving faith. That's the point of James 2. So with that kind of overview of Romans, that, uh, that three-minute overview of Romans, let's go to Romans 12, 1 and 2. So Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the first appeal from, from the Apostle Paul, from God through the Apostle Paul, is that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifices we offered, of course it did include ourselves, but in the Old Testament those sacrifices in, included animal sacrifices, gifts of, of wine and grain and a variety of other things. So they were living sacrifices that we would offer to God. But now that Christ has come and offered the definitive sin sacrifice himself, now that he has come, what we offer to the Lord is ourselves. And we offer ourselves 24-7. So we don't wait for the Day of Atonement you know, once a year, or the, or the Passover once a year, or Pentecost once a year to offer our offerings, to make those sacrificial offerings. We offer ourselves, and because it's ourselves, it's 24-7. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. 
So it occurs midnight on Saturday. We present our bodies as living sacrifice. Monday morning in RTP, you know, if you're in the hospital Tuesday night for the night shift, in those places you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Wednesday morning chemistry class, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And then we get to verse 2. And these are, these are obviously overarching, uh, comprehensive calls of God on us. And in some ways, they, they, these are, you can think of these as, as almost thesis statements for all of Romans 12 through 15, which is, which is an ethical section. It's a how do we live section. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 are, are, are showing us in these very broad, uh, categorical ways how we, how we think, how we live. And so we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's saying, do not be shaped by the world, but be shaped by the renewal of your mind. So our minds are these malleable things, and they will be shaped by something. The only question is what? Will it be the world that shapes us, or will it be God's spirit and God's word that shapes us? John Stott, on these verses, says, this is Paul's version of the call to nonconformity and to holiness, which is addressed to the people of God throughout Scripture. Both verbs, conform, transform, are present passive imperatives and denote the continuing attitudes which we are to retain. We must go on refusing to conform to the world's ways and go on letting ourselves be transformed according to God's will. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase catches the alternative. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. You might be thinking, wow, I wish I had an object lesson to really seal in this idea. I happen to have one. <laughs> it's not only the children's mystery gets to play with Play-Doh. So this, this is your mind. Yes, I know yours is bigger, but... And this is, this is a shark. It's the closest I could find in our children's ministry to something potentially bad. <laughs> and so your mind is being shaped by the diabolical world around us and it becomes this lethal shark. <laughs> and God is saying, don't, don't be like the shark. Don't do that. What I want you to be like I just said star. Stars are happy, beautiful, God-created things, right? We love them. God did create sharks as well, but we feel differently about sharks. <laughs> and so you say, no, I won't do that, Lord. What do you want of me? And he says, I want you to renew your mind according to my word and spirit and people. And so you become this beautiful star, <laughs> which happens to look just like the shark that... But it isn't. It's a beautiful star. I'm not, I'm not as good at Plato as I used to be, I think. So let that be used of the Lord in your life in many powerful ways. Well, in terms of the renewing of minds we need to do, that article I alluded to at the beginning by uh, Nakaya Natalie 
she, she says some things which uh, were, were, were jarring. You know, in some ways I wasn't, wasn't shocked, but it was jarring. So she opens her, her essay by saying, this year, and this is Thanksgiving, this year I find myself reflecting on why our nation celebrates the complicated holiday of Thanksgiving at all. This holiday is founded on the unforgivable genocide of Native Americans. And my commitment to justice for all people makes it difficult for me to celebrate things uh, I am not thankful for. So, unforgivable genocide, her commitment to justice. And yet, the blindness to then go on and be thankful for abortions is, in some ways, it's such a vivid display of this is a mind that needs renewing. It's a mind that needs renewal. Her mind isn't any different than our minds. Our minds all needed to be renewed. We weren't born with a, with a keen sense of good and evil directed by the word of God. We were born with a very undeveloped sense and by God's grace he saved us. We need our minds renewed. She needs her mind renewed. And so we likely will not have opportunity to help her, her mind be renewed, but may it happen, may the Lord do that. Because in the end we need to see that abortion is a kind of unforgivable genocide. We need to see that abortion is a, is a horrific act of injustice to unborn people. And may she see that. So within this, these opening verses is, is, a, is a clear sense that something will shape our thinking. Something will shape our thinking. So it's either going to be this world, as Paul said, or it's going to be God's word through God's spirit shaping our minds. So which is it? Which will it be for you? All right, point two, we pursue the good. So we renew minds, we pursue the good. In some ways, this, this is the longest point. And in some ways, this is a, this is a, a kind of mind-renewing uh, point. There's a lot of things I'm going to say here about good and evil that are are, will help us renew our minds and could be used to help others renew their minds as well. So I'm going to drop into chapter 13, verse, verses 1 through 7. And this is what Paul says about civil governments. And we've, we've looked at this uh, fairly recently. Uh, last, last year when we did 1 Peter, we, we dropped into Romans 13 because 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 say similar things about submitting to the authority of government. But what Paul does uniquely here is he also specifies that governments are entrusted by God to be servants that defend and support and further the good and punish the evil. So that good and evil category is really important. So let me read verses 1 through 7. So let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And remember, this is uh, Nero is the emperor in the Roman Empire at this point. Nero, the guy who's going to execute Paul and Peter uh, in not very long, maybe about 10 years after this. So Paul isn't naive. He doesn't imagine governments are all happy places where only godliness and, and uh, God's word are celebrated. He knows what a, what a human, real government is in an empire like Rome. And yet, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. It's right there, sorry. You do have to pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, obviously, the, the basic command here is to submit to civil government. That's, that's uh, you know, there's, there's a, uh, gover- God has placed civil government, human governments, over peoples, and ultimately, it's for their good. It's for their blessing. It, it keeps us, honestly, it keeps us from killing each other. It's not perfect, but it, it, does, it does basically keep us from killing each other and allows us to function in large societies in a productive way. So it is given by God for good things. So we submit to the government as an expression of our submission to God himself. But we recognize that as we submit to governments, that submission is not absolute. My final allegiance is to no person. My final allegiance is to the Lord himself. So in Romans 10.9, when Paul is communicating to these citizens of the Roman Empire what it looks like to be a Christian, He says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that confession that Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. Nero is not Lord. He's a person you must submit to, that is true. But he isn't the Lord. The Lord is Jesus. And ultimately Nero is and was, or was and is, accountable to Jesus the Lord for how he functioned as an emperor in Rome. He very likely didn't understand that he had a a judge above him that would judge his judgments, but he did. He did have that. There was a king above him that would judge him as king. And so Jesus is our Lord, and because of that, sometimes we say with the apostle Peter, and we looked at this uh, last spring, We say along with Peter, at times, at times when we're faced with certain choices, we say we must obey God rather than men. Typically, we obey men as an expression of obedience to God, but sometimes, every once in a while, we do have that that fork in the road where we must decide. And Peter tells us how we should decide. We must obey God rather than men when we're forced to make such a decision. So that's kind of the overview of Romans 13, but those one through seven, but right in the middle there, verses three and four, this is where he emphasizes the connection between governments and good and evil. And he says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct or to the good, but to bad or the evil. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do evil or wrong, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So good and evil, this dichotomy keeps coming up. And it's the same, same words used earlier in, in chapter 12 when Paul was explaining what love is. He says, let love be genuine, abhor, hate, what is evil? Hold fast to what is good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the same good and evil dichotomy. So Christians are pursuers of good. 
And what's, what's sobering is that God has commissioned governments to also be about the cause of good and evil. So the God-given purpose of government, one of them, is to reward the good and to punish the evil. And that means the truly good and the truly evil. In other words, good and evil as God defines them. Not as we, 51% of us, define it. But as God himself defines it. So governments are to reward the good and punish the evil. And so, so God is asking really for a bigger footprint for governments than might be given, say, by a libertarian. Someone who's a you know, truly consistent libertarian. So a common libertarian refrain is going to be, it's not the government's business to be involved with that. You know, and there's a lot of issues that they might throw in there. They might, marriage or gay marriage, they might throw that into that category. Maybe abortion, I don't know, depending on how, how consistently they want to approach that issue. But there's a sense that for a libertarian that governments shouldn't be involved with imposing morality on a culture. But God here is telling us that, isn't, that actually, it isn't the case. Governments are to reward the good, punish the evil. But the question is, how is a government going to know what good and evil is, right? How does this happen? Well, there's a, there's a good and evil that each person knows instinctively. So the natural law that God has kind of written on the heart of every person, some sense of good and evil. But the problem with the natural law is, uh, not the law itself, of course, but sin. Sin enables us to see it and yet distort it somehow. And so different cultures have, have different ways that they define good and evil. So the natural law is there, but it can get pretty fuzzy and sometimes be unrecognizable based on how people live out uh, their lives and their governments. And yet, that's still there. That still remains the natural law on every soul. But it's really God's word. God's word is the definitive source for what is good and evil. And yet, you can't understand God's word without God's spirit. You have to be a, a believer to understand God's word. You need the spirit of God to understand the word of God. And so all of this means that God's people have a unique calling to proclaim what is good and evil. And so in some ways, the church is the conscience of the culture. The church is the conscience of the culture. I mean, I understand that our, as Christians, we can get off at times, and we can get confused about what is good and evil. That is true. But there is no, in some ways, in this regard, there's no plan B. There's no other group of people specially tasked to proclaim what is good and evil outside of the church. So we, want it, we need to, in some ways, feel the weight of that. The church is the conscience of the culture. Now, on this issue of abortion, this is, this is a place where we, we loudly and we clearly, and, and we somewhat frequently, uh, proclaim what is wrong and right. But we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that abortion is a Republican issue. That would be a, a total misrepresentation of the facts. Uh, as if the Republicans just said, you know what, we need more votes. It seems like those evangelicals should be on our side. Let's just come up with hey, abortion. It seems like that really resonates with them. Let's just become you know, those, those guys. And, and so, uh, so, so as if abortion wasn't really a moral issue before you know, the 1970s or 80s. But just to give you, I mean, this is very quick, but just kind of a, just um, to speak against that mentality. So this would be the first guy I'll quote, and this is from 3,000 years ago, so King David. What was King David's stance 
on abortion. And Mike already read it, and this, this often gets cited, but it so powerfully just says, it's not, a, it's not just a fetus in the womb, it's a person. So what did King David 3,000 years ago say about uh, this issue? He said, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I mean, that just so powerfully destroys any sense that a person's not a person until they're born, or a person's not a person until 20 weeks, or 20, whatever, whatever the week number is you want to put on there. They're a person from conception. But then, a few centuries before that, the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, if that person's a person, then this Decalogue commandment applies. You shall not murder. But then he goes on, and even more specifically, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, that is to the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So then we fast forward uh, 1,500 years to so the first century of the church. So uh, uh, just after all the epistles have been written, there's a document called the Didache. So this is first century Christians as they're trying to summarize what God is asking of them. And it says, Didache 2.2, you shall not procure abortion nor commit infanticide. And then we fast forward to the Reformation, John Calvin in the 1500s. So as he's reflecting on that quote from Exodus 21 and 22, he writes, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. centuries ago, centuries ago, this has been a consistent position for Christians. So we didn't come up with this. We're just continuing our long established tradition as Christians. So that is, that, that's how we know what good and evil is from, this, from the word of God and then uh, continuing to study and understand and continue that tradition. And so we pursue the good. We pursue the good. We overcome evil with good, but we pursue the good. But, we don't, but, but if we stopped there, we might stop short. So the next point fills in some of the gaps that the first two points have left out. Third point is we love our neighbor. So right after Paul explains our obligation to civil governments, he, he says in one of the many famous uh, love your neighbor passages of the New Testament, he says, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, the love your neighbor as yourself is from the law itself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. It's the the second half of Leviticus 19.18, and that's the second greatest commandment. When Jesus is asked, uh, you know, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He answers with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment, but then immediately he adds on to that, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So all that the Old Testament commands of us are you can hang on those love God and love your neighbor commandments and so so when Paul is saying the love your neighbor fulfills the Old Testament he doesn't mean uh, literally all the individual commands of the Old Testament he means all the commands that have to do with how we treat people all the horizontal commands all the neighbor commands he knows that the greatest commandment is to love God and so the commands to love God are you know and there's two broad categories within our Old Testament Uh, within the commands of God, not just the Old Testament, but all the commandments. And so Paul tells us that when you love your neighbor, you automatically fulfill all those other commandments, which means the way that you know how to love your neighbor is that you look at those other commandments because that's going to tell you basic things. You shouldn't murder your neighbor. You shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal from your neighbor. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's things. So those are things that we do as we love our neighbors. So when you put all those things together, that helps you, you know, they're summed up in that love your neighbor command, as he says. And so the commands are what love does and what love does not do. And so love is not just uh, sentimentalism. It's not just a positive feeling about other people that I basically don't like and and I'm not going to do anything for. Well, Christian biblical love acts in these specific ways, and it doesn't act in specific ways. We speak in certain ways, we don't speak in certain ways. And the Bible fills out what that looks like. One theologian called this kind of love that Paul is after, pure goodwill toward others. And of course, it's a goodwill that acts. It doesn't just think and feel, it acts. Pure goodwill toward the other. And then another commentator on Romans looks at God's love and then he looks at our love in this really great way. This is C.E.B. Cranfield. He says, suffice it here to say that God in his love has claimed us wholly for himself and for our neighbors. And the love of which Paul speaks here is the believer's yes in thought and feeling, word and deed, unconditional and without reservation to that total claim of the loving God. And so far as it relates to the neighbor, a yes, which is no human possibility, but the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again, because I know that's, that's meaty. Suffice it here to say that God in his love has claimed us wholly for himself and for our neighbors. And the love of which Paul speaks here is the believer's yes in thought and feeling, word and deed, unconditional and without reservation to that total claim of the loving God. Insofar as it relates to the neighbor, a yes, which is no human possibility, but the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Well, if my neighbor can obligate me to that extent, it's important for me to know then, well, you know, the lawyer's question to Jesus right after Jesus explained what the neighbor obligation was, was, well, who is my neighbor? And it becomes very relevant, isn't it? If, if my neighbor is, is, can ask this much of me in a sense. Well, Jesus tells us that, that, we're, that uh, Jesus has answered that question 
who was my neighbor, was telling the Good Samaritan story. So in the Good Samaritan story uh, parable, the Good Samaritan is walking along and finds someone who is in desperate need, someone that he didn't go out to look for, someone he didn't know. It's not his family member, it's not his spouse, it's not his child, it's not his parent. He didn't know him, he just was, was, was going along and he, and he came across a person in desperate need, had compassion on, on that person, that total stranger at that point, and then he took care of him. Now, he didn't invite the guy to, to come live in his house and adopt him as his own child and, and write him into his will. He actually didn't do anything like that. He dropped him off at an inn with some money and he said, I'll take care of this guy's needs, whatever, whatever he needs, and then he leaves, actually. He goes on. And then he comes back to check on, on, on whether there were any more needs and he would pay that financially. So that was the kind of compassionate uh, care for a neighbor that Jesus calls us, calls us to have. So we have to say that neighbors at times are just people that providentially we come across in our lives who are in desperate need. Our neighbor includes our family. Our neighbors include our church. The church that we, as, as, as Mike was talking about, those those people that we are membered with, those people. It's my local church. And then as we have opportunity, as we feel God's call, our extended family can, can be brought into that, that place of responsibility where I, I must extend love for my neighbor. And even our community, even our entire country, or even the world itself. Now that you have to think through. We don't just have instantaneous equal responsibility for all 7 billion or 8 billion, whatever the number is now, of people on earth. And so therefore, we lose our minds, right? But that, isn't, that isn't what is being said here. You have more obligation for those closer to you. You have less obligation for those further in, in relationship to you. But where your, your, your call to love your neighbor might affect, I think there's about 10 million people in North Carolina. It's a pretty populous state, actually. A lot of people in North Carolina. Where might your obligation to love your neighbor affect those 10 million people? What well, has to do with when you vote? As you vote for politicians or, and as ballot measures are on, on the ballot in your, in your voting district, you have an opportunity to love your neighbor that you may never meet. You know, your neighbor's all throughout the state. And obviously, as we step into uh, more abortion uh, politicians and, and ballot measures, that becomes more and more relevant. So something like, North Carolina right to life in some way is even more relevant now than it used to be. When abortion in some ways was a national issue, North Carolina right to life was helpful, but now it becomes very strategic for us to, to maybe think about. And yes, on this <clears throat> Sanctity of Life Sunday, my, my, my love for my neighbor includes my un, unborn neighbors, right? That's what, that's what we're really saying here, that I have some obligation to my unborn neighbors. I can do some things at some times. But I certainly can't do everything for everybody. So, you, you know, the right thing for me to do is something between nothing and everything. Oh, you know, where exactly is it that I'm supposed to be involved? And I think that's why it's really important that we not forget what Paul said back in verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You need a renewed mind so that you can understand God's specific will for you personally. Yes, it will be informed by the word of God, the normative, what is given normatively there. However, it is a personal thing. How, how you get engaged in this issue uh, is a very personal thing. 
I mean, basic Christian obedience is engaging the issue. You loving the people that are in your life engages this issue. So we're, in some ways, we were all called to do something for this issue. But how political it gets or how specific to a crisis pregnancy center or how specific it gets to adoptions, that's going to be very personal. And that's where we really need God's discernment. So may God help us to renew minds, starting with our own, to be those who know and pursue the good, to be those who love our neighbors in the specific ways he calls us to. And so as we close here, a few things. One is, there's just so many points uh, with with these issues that concern uh, mothers who are facing traumatic and profoundly difficult situations or families because uh, it includes the husbands, of course, or the, or the fathers, of course, the children. The aftermath, if someone does go through an abortion, there's all kinds of ways where Paul's words to Timothy are very useful. He just says to Timothy, and, he, and of course, Timothy, he means something, uh, he's speaking this in a particular context, but the words are really helpful to us in this context. He says, remember Jesus Christ. I mean, to, to Timothy, the young leader uh, in Ephesus, there's a lot of possibilities where he could give his time, but what he says is, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And so as we engage this issue, we want to remember Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the remedy, the remedy. For every crisis family situation and non-crisis family situation, Jesus Christ is the remedy. He is where healing and cleansing lie. So we want to remember Jesus Christ. And then the next, the next uh, thing I want to read to you is from Carl Henry. And so in, in his book, Twilight of a Great Civilization, <clears throat> he just has a great call to action for us as Christians. And Carl Henry is unique in some ways, not absolutely unique for, for sure, but he's, he's an evangelical who was speaking against abortion years before Roe v. Wade. So he's, he has kind of a, a unique place in this issue. But he's just speaking to the church and saying, church, Feel your obligation. Feel your obligation to present yourselves as living sacrifices and renew your minds for the sake of the the people around you. He says Christianity is qualitatively different or it has nothing distinctive to offer the world. The real arena in which we are to work and witness and win over others is the world. Or we have ceased to be light, salt, leaven. Christian duty requires courageous participation at the frontiers of public concern. Education, mass media, politics, law, literature and the arts, labor and economics, and the whole realm of cultural pursuits. We need to do more than to sponsor a Christian subculture. We need Christian counterculture that sets itself alongside the secular rivals and publishes openly the difference that belief in God and his Christ makes in the arenas of thought and action. To love Christianly involves taking a stand for God that calls the world's Caesars to account before the sovereign Lord of the universe, that calls this world's sages to account before the wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, that calls this world's journalists to account before the greatest story ever told. Let me read that last sentence again. To love Christianly involves taking a stand for God that calls the world's Caesars to account before the sovereign Lord of the universe, that calls this world's sages to account before the wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, that calls this world's journalists to account before the greatest story ever told. Amen. Well, I'm going to pray, and as I close in prayer here, I'm going to pray for uh, 
uh, Gateway Women's Center, which is a place that uh, some of our people have volunteered and are committed to. So Dave and Donna Burnett gave me some ways to pray for them, and then Adrian Gross gave me some ways to pray for uh, Gateway. It's, uh, it's a home on, on Hillsborough Street. Uh, it's a crisis pregnancy center on Hillsborough Street. And so please stand as we close here, and I will pray. Father, we, th- we just thank you once again for the hope that exists in the gospel. Lord, there are clear things we're supposed to do and not do, clear commandments we are supposed to obey. There is no, there's no sense in which we wiggle out of those and so we can freely disobey. And yet at the same time, Lord, the greatest story ever told in the Bible, this greatest story ever told is the story of redemption, complete and total redemption for those who cry out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, sin wrecks lives. And yet you, you, Jesus, entered into our wrecked lives, our wrecked culture, our wrecked society, lived among us, and were even killed because of it. It was that wrecked culture, that wrecked emperor, in a sense, who put you to death. But ultimately, that is our redemption, true redemption. Not just a pretending that there's no guilt or shame attached to something, but a true cleansing, a true forgiveness, a true restoration and redemption. We can be free, be free of our sins. Not always the consequences in this life, but we can be free in a deep, in a true way. We can be free of future judgment for those sins. Our sins need not be a barrier between us and you. That when we cry out to you in faith, O oh Lord, the barrier is broken. We have perfect peace with you. We have communion with you. We have free access to you. It's a throne of grace to us. It's not a throne of terrifying future judgment. It's a throne of grace. We can come to you as our, as our own father. We can come to you in times of need. So Lord, let us, let us be a people that, where that, uh, the, the light of those truths just shines through us, where that becomes just a, a grace that affects the lives of, of those around us. And so that if we ever do have the opportunity to engage in this battle against abortion, it's, it's the fragrance of the aroma of Christ that people encounter, not our own self-righteousness and sin and human anger. And Lord, we pray for Gateway Women's Center. We thank you for their consistent work. And we pray that you would, you would give grace to all the volunteers, uh, Dave, Donna, Adrian, and the many, many other volunteers that work there. Would you give them the grace of your Holy Spirit so that as they counsel the men and women who come through their doors, they, they know the words to say in the moment. They have the right actions to take to bless those uh, mothers and couples. Lord, would you give them strength Lord, it's a long road. It's a very long road. And I'm sure the losses are many and the victories are few at times, or at least it feels that way to them. But would you give them strength and perseverance uh, to continue in this, in this fight? Would, would you give them the compassion they need as they reach out to people who are in such hard places? We pray for the practical need they have, which is funding. We pray that you would provide funding 
so that they can get the ultrasound machines and other equipment that they need uh, to serve well. And as the, as the hostilities in this issue can bubble up at times, we pray that you would protect them, just physically protect them. Help them to do their work as freely as possible so that many lives would be physically saved and also spiritually saved. And as you have uh, no doubt pricked many of us, Lord, uh, we pray that you would just guide us, guide us individually and as a church about how we should be involved in this issue. It could be Safe Families for Children. There's a hundred ways we could be involved in this this broad area of being a a church that is comprehensively pro-life. But prick us, prick us, Lord. Speak to us, guide us, give us the discernment we need to know your will for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.